For those who don't know me, I'm Sarah Worthington. I'm one of the pro-directors at the LSE uh, in charge of research and external relations, so you might wonder why I'm standing here. But we had an idea sitting around sometime last term uh, that here at a social science institution, one of the premier social science institutions in the world, we could probably do a bit more to educate the people who we were most concerned about in the social sciences. So despite some, some cries that nobody would say yes to me, I asked a group of nine academics, would they be prepared to give up a lunchtime this term to come and talk to you about how people in their disciplines think about social sciences. So this series of nine lectures, Thinking Like a Social Scientist, is the product of that idea. Uh, Stuart Corbridge, Professor Stuart Corbridge, the head of Destin, is the fourth in that series. He's a geographer. Um, I Google these people before I talk to you about them. So there are various things I could say about Stuart's background in human geography and what kind of books he's written and all that sort of thing that you expect of serious academics. But I thought the nicest thing that I read about him was that he's listed as one of the 50 key thinkers on space and place, human geography. And he was listed in that category in 2004, and I thought that was probably sufficient introduction. But no idea what he's going to talk to us about, but I look forward to it. Thank you, Sarah. Stuart. Thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation to speak. I think it was one of my friends that edited that book. Um, uh, the bar so far in this series has been set very high by, by Danny here, sitting in the front row, and Ron and Saul. Lights seem to be going down. Um, and I'm going to sort of duck under that bar a little bit. I'm going to lower the tone to start with uh, and do two things that I probably shouldn't do. First is to speak far too quickly. And second, I'm going to talk a little bit about how I became a social scientist rather than simply talk about human geography uh, and development studies. Um, I'm sure not alone in that I had a fairly unusual introduction to the social sciences. Uh, I'm not alone in having come from a discipline that mixes both the natural sciences and social sciences. But my introduction to social science was at Cambridge in the 1970s, and to say that it was unusual, I think, uh, is exactly true. I want to introduce you then, during the course of this lecture, to some serious points at the end about social science. But before I get to that, to three key mentors that I had, and I think mentors are very key in how we become social scientists. Those people are Richard Chorley, a very famous physical geographer, Derek Gregory, a human geographer, and Ben Farmer, who was my supervisor for my PhD in Eastern India. But before I get to that, though, let me say that I, I went to Cambridge in 1975 to do geography. And the first three lectures that I had, and everything that I shall say in the next 15 minutes, of course, will be true. It is somewhat unlikely at times. The first three lectures that I had were on soils, deadly boring, fluvial geomorphology, and then the cochineal industry in pre-Columbian Central America. The next day, an extraordinary guy bounced in a lecture theatre about this size and said, I'm Gus Caesar. His real name was Augustus Caesar. And he shouted at us, boys, he said, boys, sharp line, one-inch margin, the coal fields of England. And I looked around, uh, and even in those days, there were women at Cambridge. I think there were 20 out of 100 in our year group. And I almost cried. Uh, I was sitting next to a woman whose name I remember, Barbara Harrison, who was from the Royal Newcastle Grammar School, uh, likely a grammar school product, in my case, from Birmingham. But things did get a lot better. Uh, I learned to draw maps with a rotary pen, which was a, much, a very useful skill, in fact, in, in those days before GIS and computerized mapping. I learned to program a computer, or at least I was taught how to uh, program a computer using punch hole cards from Fortran. I was taught fairly advanced statistical techniques, running from multiple regression to principal components analysis to factor analysis. But I had the great joy of meeting a guy who was only a few years older than me, going through a divorce, who took two of us under his wing, and essentially, and to this day, this is Derek Gregory, had a teaching philosophy which said, whatever I'm interested in right now, that's what the first years will do in the first week. 
And for me, that meant reading a book called Social Justice in the City by David Harvey, a work, a work of Marxist urban theory. I could not make it out at all. But I did feel that this was a little bit different from the English coal fields. So I, so I persisted with it. Uh, and Derek, a rather arrogant type in some respects, sent us off across Cambridge to lectures by Polly Hill, the great anthropologist and niece of Lord Keynes, to Tony Giddens, to Mary Hess in philosophy, to Bob Rothorn, who taught me Marxist economics, uh, uh, and even to people like Lord Calder and Joan Robinson also. I mean, it was a wonderful education, but it was fairly sobering at the end of my second year to realize that I still had to pass papers in fluid and glacial geomorphology, biogeography, and stats and computing. In the third year, I much enjoyed a paper on India by Ben Farmer, and I asked him, having done fairly well at the end of my third year, if he would supervise my PhD. And he said he would. He was coming towards the end of his career. But he said he was a small g geographer. Didn't believe in big G disciplines, big E, big G, whatever. He believed in interdisciplinary studies. He believed in area studies. And he said he would take me on if I understood three lessons. First, I had to do language training. My partner sitting here in the front row and raising her eyebrows, but I did do Hindi. Uh, for a year with a New Zealand Scotsman called uh, R.S. McGregor. Then I did a year in the field in eastern India, and then he told me the third lesson, never believe any statistics published in the census. And I'll come back to that point later on. Gather your own data as far as possible, or treat with some skepticism data produced by governments. Having done my three years as a PhD student, I got my first job in 1981 at Huddersfield Polytechnic. I was allowed to teach development geography, which was my strength, and I was asked to teach, but it was made clear that I had to teach, not India, but the history of China and Japan up to 1600. And in those days, it was very difficult to dissent. There were very few jobs available in the early 1980s. And I should say also, in the staccato fashion, as an aside, that my PhD was sponsored by the SSRC, the Social Science Research Council. And some of you might recall that one of the things that Margaret Thatcher did when she came to power was to get rid of this subversive organization and had it renamed as the Economic and Social Research Council, far more reputable than that. Now, I, I, I mention these points because it's often crossed my mind that do I have a fairly wide and eclectic range of interests still by grander old age because I was trained as a geographer and because I moved into development studies, which I'd like to believe? Or perhaps was causality and selection bias the other way around? And was it the case that I chose geography and development studies because I was mad as a hatter to begin with. Maybe when I show you the first slide, you'll think that the second of those explanations is the most plausible. If I bring my own story very quickly up to date, I should say that I was doing a PhD exam three weeks ago in my office. Tremendous PhD, I'll mention her by name, Florinda Still, PhD student of Chris Fuller in anthropology. And the other examiner was Robert Dillierge, who is a very famous anthropologist of South India of the caste system. And in the way that one conducts these things, we went to lunch first in the SCR. So we talked about he was doing what he was doing. He moved away from India. He was writing a book on the 1960s. He was rather amused, I think, and pleased to see that I have a framed, photo, uh, a framed poster of the Beatles in my room alongside three posters from Nepal. So he asked me what I was doing, and I was sort of blathering away, saying, well, I'm head of Destiny now. I don't really have much time to field it. He said, no, go on. What is the last thing that you've written? So I had to say, since I was in this spirit of speaking truthfully, that the last thing that I've written, and I did tell the director this as well, early in January, is an analysis of why the England football team is performing uh, so badly, which I've written with my, with my daughter. This might perhaps encourage the view that license has run to licentiousness and that this is not social science as we would ordinarily understand it. But I want to begin with this and move to, more, to some more serious points at the conclusion. Football, of course, is big business. It's not a traditional social science topic, but along with rock and roll and culture industries, it is big business. And for those of us that have an interest in football, for those of us that actually believed the hype around the England team when it went into the 2006 World Cup, for those of us believed that we had a golden generation of footballers, Steve Gerrard, Wayne Rooney, John Terry, all of the rest, the 2006 World Cup came as something of a shock. Not as much, perhaps, 
or the shock of the 2008 European Cup exit, or the shoddy game that was played last night. But I think it prompted a number of questions about why the England football team performed so badly. Some answers that have been floated is that there are far too many foreign players in the English Premier League. But the team that won the World Cup, Italy, also has huge numbers of foreign players in its major league, Serie A. In fact, all ten of the current outfield players in the champions of Italy, Inter Milan, are non-Italians. It's sometimes said that it's coaching. You don't need to be a genius to coach football. This is not like American football, which is a very cerebral game. The tactics of football are very, very simple. The real answer, of course, is that the England players are poor. They can't pass the ball to one another, notwithstanding their high wages. They play a particularly brutal form of football that went out of fashion 30 or 40 years ago. But that, I think, raises questions about why that should be so. I think it's fairly clear that we should not expect the England team to win the World Cup. There are false expectations here. There's a lot of money bound up with England doing well, selling the sun, for example. Probably eight teams could reasonably expect to get to the quarterfinals, maybe 12. That's roughly where England ordinarily gets to. If the 2006 World Cup was replayed, I doubt that Italy would win again. There's an element of lottery here, a lot of luck. But I don't think a sane person would think that England would have won again had the World Cup been replayed. Brazil maybe, Argentina, France, Germany, Italy, but not England. But I was struck, uh, and here I come to my major point, I was struck by a piece that I read somewhere and I can't remember exactly where it was. It was in a newspaper, so it must have been a quality newspaper, where it was announced that all ten starting outfield players in the first game that England played in the last World Cup were born or brought up in Greater London, Greater Manchester, or Merseyside. And I must have filed this away at some point, the natural geographer in me. This seemed a little bit implausible. About 24% of the population of England actually lives in these three conurbations. The ethnic minorities are, of course, overrepresented there. There were only two black players in the starting 11 at the last World Cup. And Asian populations are also overrepresented there, but are hugely underrepresented in professional football. Uh, so with my daughter in a spare moment last summer, I decided to check out whether this was true and whether it was a new pattern or something that had existed since the time that England first participated in the World Cup, which was 1950. Uh, being very snobby, the English had disdained the first World Cups, the first of which was played in 1930. I'm sure you know this, Sarah, in Uruguay. No, I'm being educated. <laughs> in a way that you didn't expect. It turns out that 140 players have represented England in the World Cup since 1950, in the way that we defined it. The way that we defined it was that we looked for the starting 11 in the first game. That would be evidence of the coach's intent. And the starting 11 in the last game that the team got to which was the quarter-final in each of the last two World Cups, where they didn't even make the finals, like in 1974 or 78. We simply took the starting 11 in the last qualifying game. And during that period, because people like Michael Owen and Martin Peters have represented England in many World Cups, the sample size is only 140 players, as we've defined it, not taking account of substitutes or people that played in second or third games. And when we grafted out, uh, we, we found, of course, that the newspaper was, was right. In the 2006 World Cup, 10 of the 11 players, the only exception being the very dreadful goalkeeper, Paul Robinson, all 10 starting outfield players were from Greater London, Greater Manchester, and Merseyside. And there's clearly been a movement in that direction since the dark days of the 1970s. At this point, as the results began to come through, I had visions of appearing on Match of the Day. LSE Academic discovers that the key to England's footballing problems is that we're not recruiting from Birmingham. <laughs> so 
the Northeast or the West Midlands. My partner, who's supporting me here by sitting in the front row, I think, today, absolutely hates football with a passion. But she did warm to the idea that we might invite Alan Hansen over for dinner, since I think she puts him on a par with Piers Brosnan and George Clooney. The problem for this analysis, as you'll quickly see, uh, those of you who know your English football, is that we actually won the World Cup in 1966. And the second best team, in my experience, that England ever fielded, which probably could have won the World Cup, was in 1970, uh, two years when we had very heavy representation from these three metropolitan centres. So it's very difficult to prove the proposition that because we picked large numbers of players from these three conurbations, the England team does badly. Nonetheless, I do think it fairly extraordinary. If we break it down further, so we have London in dark blue, uh, Greater Manchester in stippled pink, and then in green or blue above that, Merseyside. But we do see, of course, it's a small sample size. I can see Danny in the front row, so I'm nervous. <laughs> With this small sample size, nonetheless, we see the extraordinary rise of Londoners. And I'm from Birmingham, so I have a slight bias here. In the England football team. And I do think it's a serious proposition that the great heartlands of English football of yesteryear do not seem to be providing, for reasons that I can't immediately think of, footballers for the national team. The last person from Tyne and Weir, which gave 18 of 140 England football players, including some of the most famous, the last person from Tyne and Weir to appear, as I've defined it, that doesn't include Michael Carrick, was Alan Shearer in 1998. A large number of players came from the West Midlands too. West Yorkshire, South Yorkshire. None of them seem to be making it now into the England football team. Whether that's because you have now to play for the so-called Platinum Four, Arsenal and Chelsea in London, Manchester United obviously in Manchester, Liverpool unsurprisingly in Liverpool, and that it's very difficult now for boys to escape geography in that sense, I'm not sure. But if you go back to 1950, that team fielded not a single Londoner. People came from Blackburn and Burnley. Three were playing from West Bromwich, three from Wolves. They were basically local boys. But this was, of course, when football was governed by the minimum wage, which it was until 1961. £20 a week was the maximum that a footballer could be paid. So I'm sure we're picking up here something to do with the, the globalisation of the game. I think that England is underperforming because it plays English-style football. I think it's also perhaps possible that we're simply not selecting boys from across the country. And a colleague of mine, Tim Dyson, said, well, did you check for date of birth? And he said, there's a literature now emerging which suggests that Nobel Prize winners and professional sports players, to a statistically significant extent, tend to be born between September and December. I'm going to come on to the economics of everyday life, which is something that Danny talked about a couple of weeks ago. This is absolutely true. There's a, an established academic literature on this. And if we think about professional sports guys, what seems to be happening is that in the Western system, the Americas and Europe, the school year generally begins around September the 1st. Kids at a very early age, who are slightly bigger, then get better coaching. And it seems to work all the way through, particularly for American football, much less so for soccer. But if we look at European soccer players as a mass, particularly schoolboy players at 16 and 18, there's an extraordinary bias towards September and December. Now, this is a PowerPoint slide that my daughter very cunningly prepared. Um, in fact, we've got September to December, which is four months on the left, and then the next two-month period, January and February. Uh, and in our small sample size of 140, I don't think we can claim that there is a statistically significant effect here, but there is a small bias towards September to December births. I should say, of course, as Tim Dyson, who pointed me in this direction, reminded me, um, September also has the highest number of births in, in most Western countries because of sexual activity sometime around Christmas. So my dreams of being splashed across the front page of The Sun and the BBC by saying that to play for England you had to be born in Greater London, Manchester and Liverpool between September and December have been dashed which means that I have then to fall back on social science of a different type. The point that I'm trying to develop here, though, is that for me there are four great lessons of social science that I think I've learned, and life lessons too, in the course of my career and in respect of my mentors. 
and the first of which, there are destined students here then, we've seen this before, is a quote from the person that I consider to be the greatest social scientist of all, maybe slightly ahead of Hayek and Keynes and one or two others, uh, and that is uh, Max Weber. And Derek Gregory, the person that I mentioned before that sent us to all these lectures across Cambridge said, and I haven't got a clue what he meant when he first said it, but for Max Weber, Weber, the true function of social science is to render problematic that which is conventionally self-evident. And it seems to me in a convoluted way that this is the absolute key to social science. It has to be fun, and we've got to be challenging received and established opinion. Established opinion in this apparently rather minor case of Indian football, bad coaching, too many foreigners. Let's test something different. But more seriously, and I think Danny hinted at this a couple of weeks ago, the extraordinary work by Stephen Levitt in Freakonomics, particularly the paper with John Donaghy, which suggested that 50% of the decline in crime rates in the United States in the 1990s, which was not anticipated, probably not due to Mayor Giuliani and better policing, probably not due to economic growth and employment, probably not due to the declining crack cocaine, but a function of Roe versus Wade, a function of making abortion legal in the United States. Those babies not born who might have been neglected according to this argument, who would have gone to a life of crime, no longer in the population. More recently, I don't know if Danny knows this piece of work, Jessica Ray, an economist at UMass Amherst, has argued that another 50%, perhaps, or a wholly different 50% of the urban crime wave drop in the 1990s in the United States was caused by the Clean Air Acts of the 1970s. Her argument is that leaded petrol, much more than paint, the removal of leaded petrol caused declining crime rates, violent crime rates, I should say, not property crime, in the 1990s in the United States. And the argument here is that it led to such extreme levels of brain damage and induced aggression that when those acts came in, and they came in at different times in different states, so you have a laboratory here, a set of natural experiments, when that Clean Air Act came in in different states, 15 or 20 years later, from the mid-70s, the crime rate began to drop. Now, this is, I think, the, the economics of everyday life that people like Tim Harford have been talking about and that Danny mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it seems to me that what's really amazing about this is that in the best forms of social science, the data sets are made available for other people to retest. Social science, it seems to me, at its best, is cumulative. It's about serious engagement, backwards and forwards. And I think it's at its strongest in, in economics. The seminars in economics that I've been to here take on a different flavor than I was used to in, in other disciplines. People have come back to Donaghy and Levitt and to Jessica Rays and said, have you considered this? What's going on in Europe? How do you explain the drop in crime in the 1940s? And so on and so forth. But the general point here, I think, is that correlation analysis multiple regressions, testing for that which is not conventionally self-evident, is a major part of the social science that people find very vibrant and has resonance, I think, with the general public. Uh, Stephen Levitt is obviously an astonishing entrepreneur too, because many of the stories that he tells in pre-economics are not even of his own work, but of the work of, of colleagues. But I do think correlation analysis and multiple regression when pushed too far also has certain downsides. My great physical geography teacher, Dick Chorley, told all of his first year students there's a big difference between correlation analysis and causality. The difference, he said, was very easy to explain. There was an almost perfect inverse correlation, he said, between the growth of lager drinking, a certain type of light beer drinking, amongst Welsh males from 19, uh, 1950 to 1975 and the decline of the Bengal tiger. But we should not assume that the great beast was being hunted by drunken hordes from the Celtic fringe. The salutary reminder of the difference between correlation and causality. Now, if I turn to development studies and try and follow this through, uh, I, I wasn't able to go to the lecture last week by Saul, but I did listen to the podcast. And he was talking there about the importance in his work 
particularly in respect of what's been happening in terms of the post-Soviet Union. The importance of institutions to be defined, as I would have done, as the rules of the game, both formal and informal. Two weeks ago, Danny was talking about growth and inequality, the trade-offs between trade-offs being at the heart of Danny's view of social science and his links to public policy. And those are really at the heart of development studies. So rather than go over those two pieces of work, I, I thought I would try and link through to what I think has been the major debate or better or worse in development studies over the past five or ten years. I see several students here groaning because they've been through this before. Development studies is not something we teach at undergraduate level at LSE. The idea is that you get proper training in a discipline like economics or political science or even human geography. It's an interdisciplinary discipline. And it seems to have as its core two main objectives. We try and understand why some countries, some regions are richer or poorer than others. And there's a sort of normative commitment, which some of us don't perhaps like quite as much. But there's been a strong normative commitment to the idea that the third world should be dissolved, that they should be made like us. Or to put it more palatably, that they should catch up. And this is the aim of development policy. Now, for a long time, there have been various hubristic versions of a big push. Various ideas that, with something like the development decade, the extraordinary 10-year period announced by the UN in the 1960s, developing countries would very rapidly catch up with the developed world. And, of course, Danny reminded us that this can happen much more quickly than I think people thought in the dark years of the 1980s. The extraordinary success of China is changing our perceptions of how quickly growth and development can be combined. But undoubtedly, the person that's made the biggest splash in recent years is a person from our twinned institution, Columbia, in New York City, Jeffrey Sachs, the advisor to Kofi Annan, major person uh, in terms of mobilizing public opinion and policymakers and governments to help developing countries meet their Millennium Development Goal targets. And we're halfway through that period from 2000 to 2015 now. In fact, I went to hear the Secretary of State, Douglas Alexander, speak in the Shaw Library yesterday about this. Now, if you don't come from a development studies background, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, the board to his book by Bono from U2, has been pushing a new version of a big push model of development. Low-income countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, trapped, he argues, in a series of interlinked poverty traps, a sort of generalized low-level equilibrium, from which they have to be shot upwards and outwards, shot even, very rapidly, with huge infusions, presumably, of money and expertise uh, from elsewhere. And Sachs has argued that fundamentally, if you look at a map of the world and see where the poorer countries are, they're in the tropics. Ergo, and it's a big ergo, and a wrong ergo, I think, these countries are poor because they are in the tropics. They suffer from inhospitable climatic regimes, poor soils, laterites, for example, the red soils. They also suffer from locational disadvantage of another type. They're a long way from major markets, they have poorly functioning roads and railway systems, ports. They also suffer from a number of diseases, particularly malaria, that perhaps we wouldn't find elsewhere in temperate areas. Others, like HIV AIDS, more globalized. And Sachs's proposition, I think it's not unfair to say, is that with huge infusions of money from the West, $25 billion a year for 10 or 15 years, we can make a big difference. We can build the roads, we can build the railway networks, we can improve the ports, we can provide malaria nets, we can provide the antiretrovirals. With coordinated action, money and expertise, we can solve the problem of development. And of course he tapped into a, a large well, I think, of popular opinion on this two or three years ago when there was a large campaign around making poverty history something presumably which we're all in favor of. 
Gordon Brown has signed up to this agenda. Tony Blair before him. But the social science behind this, I think, is doing precisely those things that I would be nervous about. Sachs, I think, rather assumes the self-evident rather than challenging it. The logic of this argument is that if we map out the countries of the world, we'll find that gross domestic product per capita adjusted for local purchasing power, purchasing power parity, the richer countries, unsurprisingly, the darker countries here, are in temperate areas. The poorest countries lying between the Tropic of Capricorn and the Tropic of Cancer. Give this map of the world to any 11-year-old boy or girl, and they will draw the conclusion that underdevelopment is caused by geography, by tropicality and poor location. Sachs makes the point even clearer for us when he takes the same map and converts it here into purchasing power parity adjusted GDP per capita in 1990 in US dollars on the vertical axis, moving up to about $12,000, and then graphing it against latitudinal bands. You see, in fact, that if you live 40 degrees south, that's where there is a peak in these uh, adjusted per capita incomes. But as you move towards the tropics, people so much poorer. And if we take one last slide from Professor Sachs, we see that 35%, 36% of the world's population lives in the tropics. That area accounts for 17% of global GDP. But in terms of the number of patents issued from people living within the tropics, less than 2%. The mainsprings of entrepreneurship and innovation simply lacking in the tropics. So the suggestion here is that it's tropicality, it's geography with a big G. If you're a geographer, perhaps it would be nice to believe. And if you're a public policymaker, it would be excellent to believe. Geography is the problem. It's excellent to believe because it suggests a Promethean solution. A series of technical interventions. This is not the argument that geography fully determines possible outcomes. I think one could reasonably argue in the middle part of the 20th century, we got over the idea that race determined patterns of differential development. That black people living in sub-Saharan Africa, biologically, genetically, were not equipped for development. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the ideology of developmentalism, has to transcend those brute forms of biologism and geographical determinism. Here the proposition is that geography is the problem, but it can be swept aside. We can irrigate the fields, as in California, as in Israel. We can even blow up the mountains, as some Maoists did in China in the 1960s. Now, this would be terrific if it was true the major problem of our time. We can solve the problems of people in sub-Saharan Africa by 2015. At the outside, said Sachs, in 2025. We simply need coordinated government action to secure large-scale foreign aid programs to support this form of spending in the tropics. Uh, but as Saul Estrin pointed out last week, this really neglects the whole question of how these aid programs would be organized even if they could be got off the ground. How would the roads be built? Who would maintain them? What are the incentives for politicians and local power brokers not to drain the resources the way elsewhere? And Danny Roderick at Harvard and Arvind uh, Subramanian at the IMF and previously at Yale have tested some of Sachs's propositions and have fundamentally argued in a nutshell that he's attributing to geography a degree of exogeneity and of causality that is simply not tenable. That is to say, we're picking up an apparent relationship between geography and development, underdevelopment. But it's caused by other things that are not built into that equation in the first place. 
And those things are good governance, the rule of law, property regimes, the rules of the game, or if you like, institutions. And Roderick and Subramaniam argue the end of a long and innovative paper. Our results, they say, show that the quality of institutions, property rights, the rule of law here, is the only positive and significant determinant of income levels. Once institutions are controlled for, integration has no direct effect on incomes, while geography has at best weak direct effects. I apologize for the next slide, which I scanned. But what we have here is a log of GDP per capita on the vertical axis, and then positive movements in terms of institutional quality integration, a measure of global uh, trade against GDP, geography distance, I think, from, from the equator. Presumably it's defined down here. And what Roderick and Subramaniam are arguing is that the only clear and significant effect that we pick up once we control for the effect of these different variables one on another is between institutions and incomes. In fact, integration, or perhaps we often call loosely globalization, once we control for institutions, has no, in this model, statistically significant effect at all. It's even weakly negative here behind on incomes. And the same also uh, for geography. Now, this is classic social science. The argument here is that Sachs has failed to get behind what is conventionally self-evident. He sees an association between tropicality and low incomes. He jumps to the conclusion that the policy implications to tackle geography, tropicality and location, ignoring the fact that the production of that bad geography, the missing roads, the missing railways, is itself most likely evidence of poor quality governance, of bad institutions. So if we are to commit $25 billion a year on the Saxon agenda, this is fairly sobering by manner of repost. Even more sobering is the next slide. We recently had a staff student committee meeting, Sarah, in Destin. And one of the criticisms of DB400, which is a wildly popular course that I teach, was that it raised far too many questions and didn't give enough answers. And I had to think well, this was a good sign, basically. I think what is disturbing people here at first sight, some of the students Destin and myself also, is that I'd like to believe in the Saxon agenda. But when you follow Roderick and his colleagues through to the end, they advertise the fact, and I quote, that the operational guidance that our central result on the primacy of institutional quality yields is extremely meager. Obviously, the presence of clear property rights for investors is key. Our findings indicate that when their property rights are protected, the economy ends up richer. But nothing is implied about the actual form that property rights should take. Consider China. We cannot even necessarily deduce that in, in acting a private property rights regime would produce superior results compared to alternative forms of property rights. In, in other words, when you get to the end of that paper, the students will remember this, he actually comes out and says, I know what we can't do. I know that the Sachs agenda, in my view, is wrong. We probably also know that there are some crazy things that government should never do. Huge fiscal imbalances, bad monetary policy. We know a lot of negative things that government should avoid. But in terms of what I'm really going to advise these countries, I don't know. The answer to that goes down to the local level. There is no general model here, no general advice, I think Roderick and Subramanian are arguing, about precisely how these property rights regimes should be specified. And secondly, and this takes us away from economics, into political science and anthropology. How the heck do we build these things? Because if the institutional analysis is right, it's fundamentally about incentive systems. I see Saga Srivastava sitting here, son of a very close friend of mine. What are the incentive systems for politicians sitting in Bihar in Eastern India to provide good governments? They're doing fairly well, many of them, out of bad governments. Following on from this, if we think about the work of Darren Asimoglu, probably butchering his name, who used to be at LSE, 
won the prize, I think, recently for the best young economist under 40 in the United States. His work, and the work of Danny Roderick, suggests that there are some ruptures when countries just get it right. They move to a different set of institutional arrangements. And the ones that are usually cited are Meiji Japan, 1870, South Korea in the 1960s, maybe Taiwan from the 1950s. But we're fundamentally talking here about regime change. Uncomfortable, I think, as that is. I had the pleasure last week of introducing the new Sierra Leonean president in the Shaw Library. One could make an argument that the best and most effective form of British foreign aid recently has been the military intervention in Sierra Leone, very different from the interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan. The bleak message, I think, of this body of work, which is at the heart of development studies, is that many of the incentive regimes that we see today in the poorest countries of the world, the so-called countries of the bottom billion, have astonishingly long path dependencies. They're often a function of different forms of colonial settlement, which themselves in part reflected geographical conditions and mortality regimes. And briefly stated, if you've not met this argument before, if you thought you were likely to die and there was plenty of gold in the ground, you get it out as quickly as possible, you don't settle down, and you don't bring in good institutions. Where that's not the case, like in, for example, the northeastern seaboard of the United States, you settle down and bring best institutions, and you pave the way a couple of centuries later for the development of North America. Now, what I'm trying to suggest here, then, is that the second lesson that I've learned as a social scientist is beware of grand solutions, beware of hubris. Beware of people selling us answers to questions that other social scientists have been working on for 50 or 60 years. Lastly, whilst there is far more then to this agenda of good governance than corruption, I'd like to move to some of the work that I've done in East India very quickly, probably heading off time, unfortunately, for, for questions. And whilst acknowledging that corruption is really not at the heart of the good governance agenda, part of that, I think, is politics and regime change. Consider a body of work around gender issues. I mentioned before that Gus Caesar bounded into our lecture theatre in Cambridge, totally disregarding the fact that there were young women there sitting in the audience. Gender was not high on the agenda, I think, in Cambridge geography in the 1970s. I found out later, incidentally, that Gus Caesar, Augustus Caesar, had a twin brother who was called Julius, which I suspect was a large part of the story. I should also say, he was a nice man. He wrote two papers in his lifetime and didn't get a PhD. It's a very different academic world back then. But let's look at gender and corruption. World Bank's beginning to get interested in this. Corruption has become right at the heart of the good government's agenda because it's easy to pick on, apparently perhaps easy to deal with. But what about gender? There's an, a body of work emerging from people in Maryland, Stephen Knack, with Swami, Lee, and Asfar here, that have hypothesized that the more we bring women into politics, into the legislature, into the judiciary, the less will be the tolerance for corruption or the private abuse of public office. It's a hypothesis. And their early cross-country work confirms this. Their conclusion is that countries with greater representation of women in government or market work have lower levels of corruption. Very general conclusion, probably more correlation than causality, cross-country regression uh, yet again. But pregnant with policy implications, let's assume that this is true. Let's assume that female attitudes would change over time. They become more masculine, if you like, but slowly then electing or placing more women in positions of power might be a way of tackling endemic corruption. And I gather that in Mexico City in the late 1990s, the police chief was so appalled by the level of complaints against his male traffic cops that he took 900 of them off the beat and replaced them with a new female-only force. This was re repeated later in Lima in Peru at least for a short period, apparently, led to better relationships between the state, the local state, the police, and drivers in Mexico City and Peru. 
it's much less clear-cut, though, I think, in India, where we've had an astonishing experiment. India has uh, three major levels of democracy. The government sitting in New Delhi, the states, which are equivalent to states in the United States, the federal republic, and then local government. And this third tier of government, the system of Panchayati Raj, local self-government, has been very much reinvigorated since the early 1990s. People from the poorest communities now have reserved seats there. And a third of all seats are reserved also for women. So if we could get good longitudinal data sets, we should be able to test the proposition that the more women come into local government, the more educated people come into local government, the better will be the spending decisions of local councils the village level, block level, the district level. Now most of the ethnographic work that I'm aware of is highly suspicious of this. Women come into the councils, but they're fronting for husbands, for uncles. But we're beginning to see some fairly big, serious social scientific work being done here, particularly by people like Esther Duffler and Chattopadhyay, but also by our own Tim Beslin who, with funding from the World Bank, has tried to test the proposition for a number of panchayats in Andhra Pradesh in South India, that the more we bring into local government people with some degree of education or formal educational qualification, the better will be the outcomes for poorer people, because the more transparent and fair will be the spending decisions. And I think Tim has argued that at the margin, for the moment, that seems to be the case. I think these are very interesting ways of thinking about gender uh, and corruption. But if I move to my last but one slide, I've also tried to do some work on this, but approaching it out of a body of work that we did in Eastern India from the ground upwards. I've worked at length in three villages in India. My supervisor was right. India probably has the best census and registration system of any developing country. But not one of the three villages that I worked in was the population of that village within 30% of the advertised total in the census. Holly Hill made this point very clear to me in the 1970s, trusting too much in official statistics. Who produces these statistics? Under what conditions? Who claims to be producing the village-level census in India? Or in the UK, for example. But I got interested in the fact that when I observed women trying to meet local government offices, we had to wait for many hours under the very hot sun or in the rain. They'd see gangs of males push in front of them. They had to meet local government offices mainly with a male broker, relative perhaps. And it occurred to me perhaps that women thought about corruption rather differently than men. Not just the numbers, it's perceptions. This is a wholly unrepresentative sample, very small sample, I think about six. It's very difficult to compare women with men because they're getting slightly different entitlements from the state. But occasionally one can see women making the same claims on the state as men. As far as we could see, women experienced a higher level of theft, straightforwardly, than men. It's far too precise here, 12%. More particularly, when women reported corruption in this part of India, they tended to speak not about monetary loss, but about time taking them on average about 37% longer to see local state functionaries than men. They had to see them through intermediaries. In terms of space, they had to make more long trips from their village to the local block office. It's in effect, it's a reciprocal here of time, because most of the time costs are traveling costs. Now, of course, sexual humiliation was not reported by men, but was reported fairly regularly, underreported doubtless here by women. Now, one of my favorite books is a book edited by uh, an economist at Berkeley, Pranab Barney, which is Conversations Between Economists and Anthropologists. And I think this is where I'm leading to. But at its best, I think that people in development studies should be able to offer that bridging function. In an ideal world, we should be able to read and understand largely the cross-country regression analysis that seems to be at the heart of many of the most serious works in economics, and they are deeply serious works, 
trying to understand the distribution of incomes across space. But at the same time, getting inside the data, getting a feel for the data, approaching things slightly more imaginatively, anthropologically, holding the two intention, being grounded in a particular place and having some knowledge of that. Those seem to me to be quite reasonable attributes for a social scientist to aim for. So my last slide would be that over the course of way too many years of doing this, from the time that I first left a, a mixed sixth form college on the edges of Birmingham in 1975 to now, I think I can boil down four of the major social science lessons that I've learned as being these. One is have fun and think outside the box. This is why Freakonomics is attractive. This is why Tim Harford's book is also in many ways so attractive. The football example that I gave you is not as trivial, I think, as you might imagine. It's a multi-billion dollar industry and it raises some interesting questions that social scientists might try to address. And if you're wondering, have I advertised this to the director of the LSE? I did. I sent him a copy. And in my hour-long briefing with him at the start of the year to discuss destiny and business, we spent 15 minutes on the football paper, the magazine Manchester City. Secondly, it seems to me that social science is cumulative. The bottom line is that we have to work hard, we have to read widely, we should try and give papers in other people's disciplines. There is no royal road to science, as Mark said, without working hard. Correlation analysis, multiple regression, these are very important ways, I think, of agitating the mind to think laterally. But as Keynesian-minded economists in the first part of the 20th century, mathematics can be a good servant, but it can also be a bad master. It has to be put to better use. I do think that social science is cumulative. And this, I think, is where the attitude that we find in many economic seminars, the making available of data sets to other scholars, sets a standard that the other subjects still perhaps aspire to. Thirdly, it seems to me that whilst I'm interested, as many of us are at the LSE, in public policy issues, it's asking good questions that is important and in which terms we should be selling ourselves, rather than necessarily, it varies of course, we're talking about identity cards, we need answers, but very often it's asking critical questions. That is the nature of an academic training that is relevant, I think, to public policy. And particularly we should avoid the, the, the hubristic attitude towards social science, which suggests that I, Eureka-like, have suddenly found an answer to the world's problems. If that was the case, it suggests that other people have been particularly stupid beforehand. And finally, as I say before, I do think that feel for the data, getting inside data sets, learning how they are produced, whilst working with kind of data sets also, is a particularly important lesson that I have learned.